Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Good morning. You're watching the Independent Republican Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. We're on TV, we're on radio, we're online and on your smart speaker. Coming up, war on Israel. More than 1,000 people have died in Israel and Gaza following an attack by terrorist group Hamas. We'll speak to people there uh, on the ground later on. Starmer vows to scrap Rwanda deportation plans even if it does stop the channel crossings. If he was the next Prime Minister, we'll bring you the latest from the Labour Party conference. Plus, BBC bosses come under fire as a drama about Jimmy Savile airs tonight, with critics calling it exploitative. Welcome back to the Independent Republican. Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. We are here with you, of course, after one of the most horrific weekends I think that any of us can remember. Uh, most of you, like me, will remember waking up on Saturday morning uh, to the dreadful news that Hamas had, in fact, invaded uh, from Gaza the uh, Israeli country, not just uh, with one or two people, not just climbing through the fence with a, a handful of terrorists, but a 1,000 gunmen. Uh, all walking around, marching around with machine guns, with heavy mortar fire. Uh, some of them flew in on paragliders. It was quite an extraordinary time. Uh, and, of course, we now know um, that an awful lot of people, an awful lot of innocent people, have died. Israel is in the midst now uh, of what you can only describe as uh, an attack, uh, a retaliation attack, uh, and it's just horrific. Saturday was the deadliest day uh, in decades so far. Over 1,100 people have lost their lives. Hamas claiming to hold over 100 hostages uh, in Gaza. They invaded this kind of music festival and ended up taking these people away. Uh, many of them young, many of them have been up all night, many of them just dazed and confused. Um, they shot old people standing at bus stops. They took children. Um, they paraded women naked on the back of pickup trucks. I mean, it is probably some of the most horrific footage that I've ever seen. And I've seen some horrific footage. I covered the war in Bosnia, uh, and that was pretty ghastly. But this, I think, um, absolutely beats every single thing that I've ever seen in any way, shape or form. So joining me uh, to discuss what happens now, former Brexit Party MEP Alex Phillips and Talk TV's international editor uh, Isabel Oakeshott. Isabel, uh, can I come to you first? I mean, I, I'm sure you share, as we all do, this kind of revulsion about what has happened here. Uh, we've talked about it this morning with Kevin, uh, the way that it's been covered here, the way that there has been a kind of um, ridiculous reaction from some quarters to what has happened as well. Um, but in terms of what's happening today, Isabel, in, in, in Israel, um, obviously there's a crisis going on. Netanyahu's in, in some kind of trouble. There's a security issue as to how it could have happened. Um, what is going on at the moment today? Well, just fears of escalation. And we've seen that Joe Biden has sent a battle group to the region. There's a real concern over what Iran is going to do. They've obviously been quite gleeful over what's happening, quite openly so, some of the Iranian leaders gloating over the dreadful scenes. Uh, I mean, these some of these images coming out of uh, Israel are so shocking um, that really people would be advised almost not to look at them uh, because they are truly horrific. And Israel has to decide what is the scale 
of its retaliation going to be? Uh, do they launch a, a ground offensive into Gaza? Uh, now, that is a, a very difficult decision to take because not least of the density of the population there. If you think of Gaza as being an area the size basically of the Isle of Wight, uh, with a population of some 2.3 million. Uh, so extraordinarily densely populated area, uh, one of the most densely populated areas in the world. So any kind of ground offensive is necessarily going to lead to huge civilian casualties. Uh, they can, of course, also uh, send in special forces. I'm sure they'll do that to target particular Hamas leaders and um, targets there, and in the hope of rescuing some of the many hostages that have been so dreadfully taken. So really delicate decisions to be made there. Um, obviously, Israel has to respond and respond with force, and it has done already. Uh, many targets been hit, uh, and quite rightly, it couldn't just sit there, could it? And it seems at the moment to have the overwhelming support uh, from the West. Uh, but it, 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 this is a very, very, very delicate situation. You do not want this spreading out into the region. And there are real risks of that. Absolutely, Isabel. Thank you very much indeed. Alex, uh, good morning to you. Um, this is very much um, being uh, blamed on Iran, isn't it? The fact that Iran uh, is the catalyst here for all sorts of anti-Israeli policy. Uh, we believe that Iran uh, has just received $6 billion from the United States of America. Joe Biden gave them the money, freed up the money to them. Um, Thank you. And they now seem to be more or less completely bankrolling Hamas, both in, um, uh, in, in, in Gaza, but also bankrolling Hezbollah, in Lebanon as well. Lebanon sort of sort of signed in, if you like, with a, with a small rocket attack yesterday. But so far, Lebanon haven't joined in. Right. And, and you actually bring up a very good point here, which is the geopolitical divides that we're seeing take place. The rumour is, or the strong suspicion is, that there was a meeting conducted in Beirut in Lebanon, home of Hezbollah, of course, between Hamas. That was joined by the Revolutionary Guard of Iran, and that it's suspected that they actually helped coordinate what is quite a sophisticated attack. We haven't seen Hamas be able to successfully breach land borders or the Iron Dome, that air defence system that Israel have in place for a very long time. Uh, but what we've got to look at is how this now works out on the world stage. We know that Russia and Iran have been trading intelligence and weapons and doing joint military exercises together. We know that Saudi Arabia, who, of course, in that particular region, are the sworn enemies of Iran, have recently signed a peace accord with Israel, which could have triggered this particular action, as well as uh, weakness of the West when it comes to Russia invading Ukraine. And so when you look at how the dividing lines are going to potentially uh, be set up with many elements of the West supporting Israel and those who are enemies of the West, if you will, Iran and so on and so forth, supporting uh, Palestine, then you're actually looking all of a sudden at something which could very quickly escalate into a global uh, global conflict, as Isabel was saying. Now, I think what needs to happen urgently is sensible nations from that region need to try and sit down and be mediators and organize some sort of peace talk. I'm thinking Qatar would be a great uh, be a great opportunity for that particular state, a state which is trying 
to have more leverage on the world stage, trying to show itself to be completely nonpartisan and non-aligned, is interested in holding more peace conferences and, and, and global get-togethers. And I think if someone like Qatar were to step forward and say, look, we need to sort this out, there needs to be some sort of regional mediation, that is what needs to happen next. America is going to be in a very difficult position now where people will be saying, are you going to involve yourself directly or not? Of course, there are arms relationships. We've recently seen an arms contract between the USA and Saudi Arabia being blocked by Germany, who didn't want the USA selling fighter jets to Saudi Arabia. I mean, this really is a melting pot that's been building for years and years and years, but we have not seen an attack on Israel of this scale. Uh, and so this really does set an extremely dangerous precedent. It really does. Isabel, if I can come back to you um, on the basis of, of... Oh, sorry, I can't come back to you. I'm, I'm going to put this to you then, Alex. My apologies. Um, okay. Because, obviously, um, there are several things that could happen next, and that would be, uh, as you say, if the Americans get involved in trying to blockade uh, Iran's oil exports or uh, if Iran decides to try and blockade the Straits of Hormuz, which they've done before, you know, suddenly it becomes a wider conflict. I'm told okay. already the Saudi deal with Israel, which was a kind of trade and, and cooperation deal, is now dead in the water because the Saudis cannot even be seen to be negotiating with, with Israel while they're bombing Palestine. So, I mean, the whole thing is an absolute um, nightmare for, for the whole world, isn't it? Yeah, indeed. And actually, if you look at things that have been taking place over the past years, if not even decades, we're looking at those maritime routes as critical. I'm not just talking in terms of maritime routes where that there might be attacks launched from naval positions and, and therefore maritime warfare, but indeed the transportation of oil, the transportation of gas, the transportation of grain. And what Russia have been doing alongside uh, Iran and other allies around the world, including South Africa, is uh, practicing very much these sort of naval maneuvers and looking at how they might be able to control water routes. We've seen it with grain coming out of Ukraine and whether that can reach the rest of the world. Israel, of course, has a very important sea border, as does Iran. And we need to be very careful now to, to, to try and anticipate, look at this like 3D chess. What do they want us to do and what are they planning to do in reaction to that. They have gone in and done some of the most horrible things imaginable. They have not targeted Israeli forces. They've targeted grandmothers, women and children. They have paraded the naked bodies of young women in the streets. This is deliberately provocative. They want to see a reaction in kind so they can justify an escalation. At least that is my anticipation. And it's very difficult, as Isabel was saying, for Israel to sit back now and say, well, we can't do anything because this could explode into something extremely dangerous. And I've been speaking to some people on the ground in Gaza. There are some people there who support the moves of Hamas, but a lot of people in Gaza are terrified because they do not know what this is going to bring. Lots of people are fleeing to hide in schools mm. because they know that the Israelis will not attack schools. Uh, I'd love to say it'd be the same the other way around, although I do not think that that is the case. And so you're already seeing now a huge amount of trepidation with the local population. Yes, there will be some hardened people who support this. We're seeing flare-ups of support even in migration centres in Europe, people who have been fleeing areas or illegally entering Europe from areas in the Middle East, who are openly celebrating this yeah. attack on Israel. So this is going to see sort of, you know, little flare-ups that could become huge flames all around the world. And it, it frankly, it's terrifying. 
It really is extraordinary what's going on. Let's hear from Conservative MP Bob Seeley, uh, who's a member of the Foreign Affairs Select Committee uh, in the House of Commons, because, Bob, you wrote a piece yesterday um, in which you uh, described the weakness of the West and how this should have been something that we could see coming. I mean, it seems extraordinary, doesn't it, that Israel, who I've always thought of as the most secure country probably in the entire world, and the United States as well, didn't see this coming, because you pointed out it was clearly in the planning for a long time. Um, it, it is difficult to see these things when they come and then everyone afterwards says, well, why didn't you see it? So we should give the, uh, you know, the Israelis occasionally uh, their security or their uh, intelligence occasionally fails them. And, and as in 1973, it, it's failed them over this weekend. So it's pretty it's you know, it's a very significant moment for them. And they're obviously going to have a look at why they failed and why they didn't see. Uh, what was coming and the, all the sort of various deception operations which were being managed against them by Hamas, yes. But I mean, looking forward, I think there's a, a lot of what Alexandra said was correct. And I do think that we are seeing the dividing lines in, a, sadly, an increasingly global uh, conflict. You have Russia and Iran, very close relationship, needing each other's arms and expertise. Uh, North Korea as well, and potentially China. Let's see what happens with China. I mean, I've seen um, analysis this weekend in which it's been said that this is a further kind of um, pointer, if you like, to the the, uh, the lack of power uh, from the United States. The United States is sort of seen internationally, at least, as, as in decline when it comes to being able to police the world. Um, Joe Biden's been very, very heavily criticised for giving this $6 billion to the Iranians because of the, uh, the sanction problem. Um, and America's in a kind of difficult position here as well, right? Yeah, America still has a, a vast amount of power. I, I think it's almost the desire to withdraw from the Middle East and not be so focused. And because they're now self-sufficient in energy, because they chose to frack um, 10 or 15 years ago, um, they now have less diplomatic need to be quite as closely engaged as they were before. And the problem with that is that the Europeans and the Brits don't have the power to do it themselves. And you then have China that steps in and starts to develop much closer relations, including with Israel. And the, one of the slight problems has been for both Israel and the US is that their relationship has not been as strong as it should have been in recent years uh, because there's a difference between what the Biden administration wants to see from Israel and what Netanyahu wants to see from Israel. Absolutely. And I mean, I'm looking at a piece today written about the the, uh, the chief, Hamas chief, who sits in an office in Qatar, um, who was seen sort of gloating uh, over the attack and celebrating. Uh, his name's Ismail uh, Haniyeh. Um, he's obviously, you know, being protected, if you like, by Qatar, um, in the same way that the Taliban's only official office uh, is in that part of the Middle East as well. You know, it's an incredible kind of complex view of the world that you have to take when you look at Saudi Arabia, where you look at Qatar, they don't get along. Uh, you look at Iran, who do get along with Qatar. I mean, how do we find a way through this? Because it seems to me that the peace deal that everybody talks about uh, is a simply impossible one to make. I'm not so okay. I don't. I'll, I'll put the, an, uh, an alternative argument, Mike. That the reason why this is taking place now is because there was an effective normalisation of relationships yes. between uh, Israel on one side and between a lot of Sunni states on the other. So Israel has its normalisation of relationships with Morocco. It's got its normalisation of relationships with the UAE, and it's got a trade now with the U, with the UAE, which is worth about two and a half billion a year. And it is beginning to normalize or has gone a significant way to normalize relations with Saudi Arabia. This is happening today. In There are some internal reasons in Israel and there have been some bad things, 
certainly true, which have happened to Palestinians at the hands of Israeli settlers in the West Bank. One should not ignore that. And a number of Palestinians have died this year. But the overriding reason that this is happening now is because Iran wants to put a stop to the normalization of Israel as another, just another Middle Eastern state. And the problem is that when Israel is very obviously now killing Palestinians, i.e. killing Muslims, in 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 um in order to secure its borders in order to get those militants or terrorists however you want to describe them out of that country that means that it is becomes much more difficult for saudi arabia to normalize that relationship so this is why this is happening it's happening because there was a move to the normalization of relationships between some sunni arab countries and sunni muslim countries um and israel so that's why this is happening it's happening to put a block to all the good things that were happening in the middle east mm. notwithstanding continued problems between israel and the palestinians in the west bank and elsewhere absolutely bob stay where you are if you if you could please for a moment i just got to ask you a couple more questions but let's talk to alex phillips again uh, former mep of course alex i mean you mentioned that uh, the reaction of some people the reaction around um, europe in fact because of course what we've got now in europe is an awful lot of people uh, who have come from the middle east and who have come from shall we say, countries that might sympathise with the Palestinian cause. I mean, I was personally pretty horrified to see marches in Birmingham, in Manchester. Tonight, there's a Stop the War Coalition um, vigil outside the Israeli embassy. I mean, uh, I know that we live in a country that supposedly prides itself on free speech, um, but they, they should not be celebrating what Hamas have done, should they? Well, no, I find it utterly appalling. And this is going to cast a long shadow over the Labour Party conference as well, with accusations going back many years that they tend not to be particularly favourable towards Israel. Um, but and, and I think that, you know, we cannot crack down on these sorts of things, but we are going to see these reactions because we have imported so many people of completely different cultures from around the world without checks and balances. Um, and now our streets are very often used as, uh, you know, campaign platforms in the wider arena of geopolitics. I want to pick up on Qatar again, because, you know, I think it's important to talk out that to point out that Qatar does have a dialogue with Hamas. It always has mm. done. But with the backing of Mossad and Israel, it was Qatar who helps to deliver aid to the Gaza Strip. Qatar tries to play the part of being non-aligned. They were also the peace broker between the US and the Taliban um, in, in Afghanistan. They are a key interlocutor and actually they're considered a non-NATO critical ally of the West. You know, America has an air base there. We have been doing joint military uh, airborne exercises with Qatar, which is why I said earlier that, of course, Qatar speak to both sides. But this is why I think they could be extremely important in creating a dialogue in the Middle East. They have tried to make sure that they're not aligned. And I hope that someone like Qatar will now step up and try and bring people around the table. I mean, this is the problem, isn't it? I'm just looking on social media this morning and I'm seeing um, a tweet from Bella uh, Wallersteiner saying a kosher restaurant, the picture, a kosher restaurant has been smashed up in North London overnight, eerily reminiscent of the 1930s Germany, which my Jewish grandfather fled. The full force of the law must be used. I mean, Suella Braverman has said that the police will have to act if they see any kind of anti-Semitic activity. Um, but how are they going to differentiate between people waving Palestinian flags and calling it anti-Semitic activity? It's very difficult. I don't know how they're going to do this. And actually, another thing we've got to be prepared for is there will be migratory flows. You know, if this escalates and there will be people needing to leave that region and go somewhere. And I would want to see 
personally, Britain to be an option for people fleeing Israel if, if things do escalate there and finding sanctuary here because they have nowhere else to go. Uh, I often think that when you look at the Gulf states and people fleeing um, you know, Muslim countries, they have lots of neighbours to go to and that region very rarely steps up and takes their fair share. Uh, so that's going to be another big question if this continues that we're going to have to answer as the West and all of that will build up and build up to essentially creating other tensions on our streets within our communities and this is why politicians have been daring to say for decades we need to get a grip on inward migration we need to know who's coming in on small boats we need to make sure people are integrating and not becoming balkanized blocks because then what you end up with when there are escalations and global conflicts and regional fallouts we feel the after effects here and it's going to be extremely delicate and difficult for our police to know what to do and actually this is why the spotlight should be on labor right now they tend to be the party that houses sympathizers to palestine they need to be quite clear as potentially the future government of this country where they stand on this because i know it sounds insane but anything said on the stage at that labor party conference will be listened to and picked up aboard if it's relating to what's going on in the middle east and we need to see leadership right now this is not the time to mess around and be vague absolutely right and of course Keir Starmer can say uh, uh, all the condemnations that he has said and, and that's very uh, uh, good that he's done that but there are still elements of the Labour Party that you know and I know uh, will not do so uh, Jeremy Corbyn famously we saw this morning refuses to sort of condemn it he says I condemn all attacks all attacks are wrong which is not quite the same thing as condemning Hamas he won't condemn Hamas and yesterday at a fringe meeting um, they were considered uh, to be martyrs the people who went into Israel killing innocent people people taking children hostage they were called martyrs by somebody at a palestinian fringe event Let's be careful how we talk about this in the media as well, because this wasn't an actual formal fringe event at the Labour conference. This was opportunists having their own event at the same time as the Labour conference. And similarly, Jeremy Corbyn is a nobody and a has-been. He doesn't deserve the, 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 the oxygen of publicity. And the more we give the oxygen of publicity to these people holding their unofficial meeting on the side of the Labour conference, but nothing to do with it, the more we give newspaper headlines and airtime to the Jeremy Corbyn, Corbyn's, the more people around the world will think we're part of this thing and that we take a position, you know, and it's extremely important right now that we tread extremely carefully to not say anything or do anything because, you know, other countries will pick up whatever small narrative it is and explode it in their domestic press and push it online using bot farms to paint a very different picture and therefore escalate tensions, hostilities and divisions in this country. So when it comes to these pointless little events, quite frankly, that are happening in the same place at the same time as the Labour conference, but not attached. And when it comes to Jeremy Corbyn, I think that these people should just be blanked out, not listened to, and definitely not platformed well, right now. Well, that's fine, but you can't blank out people marching in Birmingham, waving Palestinian well, no. flags and chanting. You can't blank out people doing the same in Manchester. And I'm sorry, but these are people who uh, may, may, may or may not be part of the Labour organisation. But at the end of the day, you know, when I saw that uh, there'd been an incident in Egypt yesterday as well, where an Egyptian policeman, I think, had shot dead two Israeli tourists and then uh, shot also their uh, their tour guide we don't know what happened there but my first thought was well what if that starts to happen here what if people start to you know take their own uh, view on this and decide to attack a kosher restaurants to attack mosques we just heard kevin o'sullivan telling us that he was out last night walked past the synagogue which is being guarded now by armed police 
Yeah. And this is going to happen. And it's utterly, utterly tragic. And you're right, those things we do report on, I think, because that is essential. And this is where we need to have, like I said, leadership from the top, whether it be the Conservative Party or the Labour Party self-styling themselves as a government in waiting to try and simmer down these tensions, to crack down on people opportunity, opportunistically using what is potent, has the potential to escalate into an extremely devastating conflict in the Middle East and, and, and spread further. We need to have leadership now from our politicians, which is strong and decisive. And when it comes to people taking a view, taking sides, launching attacks, whether it be on mosques or synagogues, carrying whichever flags they want in the street, we have to be very clear that the UK is not a, an arena for becoming a pantomime of other people's political problems and other tensions elsewhere. We need to actually make sure right now that we dampen down these things because there will be uh, these, these pickups in hostilities between communities here. I mean, look, the, the, the horse has already bolted when it comes to what's led to this situation. It's uh, uncontrolled mass immigration without checks and balances and integration. And we've been doing that for decades and we're still doing it now. We're in this situation. We know we've got balkanized blocks of people who bring their geopolitical discontent to our streets now we've got to deal with it and I like I said I want to see strong leadership from politicians on this nothing wishy-washy and I want to see the police able to get on with their job not having to take sides or pander to this person or the other or be afraid of offending this community or that community but police our streets and say this is not a place where you can get away with doing these things. And how do you see it unfolding uh, in um, Israel and, and Gaza over the next few days? I mean, will it end up with uh, Israel basically bombing um, the, 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 the Palestinian part of the, of, the, of the world into oblivion? Well, I really don't want to predict and I don't want to suggest, but Israel does often react um, strongly as it has to. You know, Israel is by itself in that region. It is surrounded by other countries who largely don't want it to exist. Right. Um, and so it has to stand up for itself and it has to stand up for itself forcefully. Uh, what they've already said to people in Gaza is get out. Please get out. Please make yourself safe. We don't want to attack civilians. Get out because we need to respond and respond uh, with uh, due strength. Um, and but, so it's very hard to predict what's going to happen next. What alarms me is what we're hearing on the other side. You know, Hamas have been, uh, there have been incursions and, and, and activities trying to attack Israel since time immemorial, frankly. But we have not seen a ground offensive. We've not seen the sophisticated and coordinated attack that we've seen over the last few days. And it's the fact now that it seems quite likely that there are other regional players involved, um, potentially more sophisticated weaponry going to Hamas. Mass. And so this has the potential to go on for a long time and to blow up into something the likes of which we haven't seen before. And I, I really don't want to make predictions lest they may actually come true. Yeah, absolutely. Alex, listen, thank you very much indeed for talking to us. Alex Phillips there uh, with her take on what's been happening over the last few days and what could possibly happen uh, over the next week. Because make no mistake, um, this is a massive problem, not just for uh, the Middle East, but for the entire world. <laughs> Welcome back to the Independent Republican, Mike Graham. The Labour Party's annual conference kicked off yesterday. Uh, Labour's shadow chancellor will be speaking at around midday, uh, and she, Rachel Reeves, is apparently going to take aim at Britain's antiquated planning system. Uh, and she's going to talk about ca cracking down on COVID fraud. The big question is, is this going to convince 
the public. Joining me now uh, is Talk TV's political editor, uh, Peter Cardwell. Uh, Peter, a very good morning to you. Uh, welcome to uh, Labour Party conference, I suppose I should say as well. You'll be uh, there for a few days. Um, obviously, the events of the weekend have very much dominated the news and, and will, to some extent, cast a bit of a long shadow over everything that happens uh, up there. But, but you were at Tory Party conference last week. Um, what's the difference? Very, very different atmosphere here. As you say, those horrendous events in Israel will obviously overshadow what happens here. We've had various people like the Shadow Foreign Secretary, David Lamy, outright condemning that today. Rachel Reeves as well did some interviews this morning where she made her views clear. But certainly there is an upbeat, buzzy atmosphere. I spoke to one person in the TQ who was campaigning in Hamilton West uh, in the constituency that has just had a stonking Labour majority and a victory in that by-election over the SNP. So I think a number of people here are really uh, sort of excited but a bit nervous but for sort of Christmas Day kind of feeling in that they feel that Labour are well ahead in the polls, will probably be the government after the next election. Here Sarmer asked about that earlier today. He says May or October are the two times he thinks there could be an election. Obviously in May there'll be local elections and various metro mayor elections including in London. And in terms of the way that, uh, that Keir Starmer's trying to pitch himself, I mean, a lot of people are saying he's got to be prime ministerial, he's got to look like the guy who could be in charge of the country. Uh, according to a recent Talk TV poll, 36% uh, of people said they trust Labour regarding the economy, um, which strikes me as quite a high number, to be honest. Well, it's interesting when you look at that poll because that is the mountain that Rachel Reeves has to climb today in just over an hour when she makes her big speech here to say that Labour would have, as she puts it, an iron grip on the economy. There's to be no new money for day-to-day -day spending. And she's hoping, as she says, to unlock private sector investment, things like uh, house building, for example. She wants £200, 200 billion pounds worth of private investment to go into that. She's been meeting business leaders all morning on the sort of smoked salmon and scrambled egg offensive. Uh, Keir Starmer's been involved with that too. And there are a lot of businesses here. And one major co contrast, I would say, between last week at Conservatives and here at Labour are the huge number of business people, chief executives, senior finance officers, people who want the ear of uh, Keir Starmer and Rachel Reeves because they see the way the wind is blowing, certainly in terms of what the polls are telling us anyway. Yeah, absolutely. And in terms of the inner, inner sort of uh, core, if you like, uh, of the Labour Party, a lot of people say, yeah, it's all very well talking about Keir Starmer, maybe even Rachel Reeves, but uh, even possibly Angela Rayner. Um, but do they have enough of a team, if you like, to put a gov government together, to put a cabinet together? Have they got enough experience to take over uh, and actually run the country? Yeah, I suppose a lot of people will ask that question. Certainly Tony Blair had no ministerial experience. There are very few people in Keir Starmer's shadow cabinet who have any ministerial experience. Ed Miliband is one of them. Yvette Cooper is another one. But you have people who are highly rated by Labour members, such as Wes Streeting, the shadow health secretary, seen as a future leader. People like Rachel Reeves have never had ministerial office, but she's been an MP since 2010, and she used to work for the Bank of England. She is an economist. She knows roughly what she's talking about, even if people think that she might be going in the wrong direction economically. But we'll hear a lot more from her later on. And this is one of the very few times when the opposition is guaranteed media coverage. Everybody will hear at least a clip of what Keir Starmer says in his speech tomorrow. So that is a, a real uh, opportunity for the Labour Party to present themselves, to go forward and to try to talk to the country, not just the people here in Liverpool, the people who've paid their money to come to this conference. Yeah, and Keir Starmer did some big sort of set pieces interviews yesterday. Um, nothing particularly major came out of them. There's still a sense that he's not quite as decisive as perhaps he should be. He's not quite as demonstrative as he should be. Is he saving it all for his speech then? 
we'll see when the speech comes tomorrow, but I agree with you. I don't think those interviews particularly went very well. There were a lot of questions that were still hanging in the air, certainly in regard to planning policy. What would happen? I mean, he's, he's really betting the farm on there being growth in the economy and that allowing and unlocking the money, really, that can go into the economy to do the public service reform and projects that he wants. But the question was asked a number of times in a number of interviews, what if you don't get this growth? What if the economy doesn't turn around? And Rachel Reeves has said, the Shadow Chancellor, has said that the economy that she will inherit is really bad. And I don't think too many people would disagree with that. We're in a cost of living crisis. Inflation is too high. Uh, there are lots of economic problems. So how Labour would turn that around and how long it would take kind of remains a bit of a question. And when this growth that Keir Starmer is talking about comes, is it a year? Is it two years? There was no real answer on that. So I think there's quite a lot of uh, questions still for Keir Starmer and Rachel Reeves, and they will attempt to answer those over the next couple of days. And obviously what happens over the next few days in, in Israel is going to be pretty key for this conference as well, because if it does escalate, if things get worse, if something happens, you know, we're going to have demonstrations in this country as well. I mean, they're going to have to be on top of all of that as well. Yeah. Yes, indeed. And I think it's interesting that very, very quickly after the horrendous events in Israel unfolded, you saw Keir Starmer, Rachel Reeves, David Lamy, the Shadow Foreign Secretary, many people putting out tweets, making it clear they unequivocally stood with Israel. The question is, when you go to the next round of those questions, for example, Suella Braverman, the Home Secretary, said that uh, people in West London, for example, who appeared to be celebrating the deaths of people in, uh, in, in Israel and those uh, bodies, corpses, very sadly and, and horrifically being paraded through the streets. There were people celebrating that and cheering and uh, sort of beeping horns and having Palestinian flags and so on. Suella Braverman, the Home Secretary, said that the full force of the law should be used against those people. What does Labour think about that? I think there's another round of that as well in terms of Gaza. Now we've been told that Gaza, Israel wants Gaza to be completely uh, cordoned off in terms of uh, electricity, in terms of water, in terms of all, uh, any supplies. Basically wants, wants uh, the people who are not Hamas terrorists to leave and then the Hamas terrorists are going to try to uh, have a siege, essentially, of Gaza. Does the Labour Party... Uh, support that? Does the UK government and Rishi Sunak support that? Because that could be seen as a very, very serious measure and something that may not be supported by all Western governments. So it'll be interesting. This will overshadow this conference. Things will change in terms of Israel. Things will heighten, certainly. It is a horrendous thing. We saw last night that Downing Street was lit up with the Israeli flag. Is that something Keir Starmer would do? So I think Keir Starmer has done an awful lot um, he'll never get it 100%, but he's done an awful lot to try to uh, get, get the anti-Semitism out of the Labour Party. A lot of people have been expelled. A lot of high-profile MPs have been shown the door as well. But what is interesting is that in a very short period of time, about three or four years, Keir Starmer really has taken action on this. Now, there will still be anti-Semitism in the Labour Party. We may see some of that today. There are a few events that we'll be monitoring here at Talk TV to see what people say at that point. But it is very, very interesting that the leadership, certainly, of the Labour Party has been very clear that it supports Israel in this horrendous uh, terrorist attack by Hamas. Right. Peter, thank you very much indeed. Peter Cardwell reporting into us there from Liverpool, uh, where Labour Party conference is going on. But now, it's time for this. I don't think anyone uh, could have failed to be completely and utterly appalled at the news that happened over the course of the weekend, at the videos that we saw, uh, the ghastly and terribly barbaric behaviour uh, by Hamas troops taking women hostage, uh, raping them, killing them, displaying their naked bodies on the back of pickup trucks, spitting on them, taking children hostage, uh, calling them names, calling them Jews, 
absolutely just slaughtering innocent people at bus stops, taking old people hostage. Well, unfortunately, apparently there are some people in this country who are not appalled by that. We saw a march in Birmingham yesterday. We saw a march in Manchester. Uh, we've seen various student unions basically saying things like um, the, the martyrs uh, have given their lives fighting against evils of Israel. We've got the University of Warwick, University College London. Uh, we've got the School of Oriental and African Studies. All of them saying that this was a martyr attack and this was something that had been long overdue. Well, I'm sorry, that is not the kind of language that we want to hear about this kind of atrocity here in the UK. Tonight, there's going to be a vigil uh, outside of Downing Street. People are going to be showing solidarity with Israel. At the same time, there's going to be a Stop the War Coalition uh, demonstration outside the Israeli embassy. And I think the police are going to have to be very careful. We've already seen one uh, Jewish restaurant, a kosher restaurant in Golders Green in North London, uh, being attacked, having its windows smashed. There are people in this country who have come here uh, who know that they hate Israel. There are people celebrating in migrant camps in Greece, uh, people celebrating in migrant camps in Spain, in France, cheering the Hamas killers. I find that absolutely sick-making. It's horrific. It's awful. It's got to stop. Welcome back to the Independent Republican Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. At one time, he ate crisps for breakfast. 15 Monster Energy drinks in a go and huge portions of Donna meat every single day. But now, at 47 stone, Jason Holton believes he is Britain's fattest man. He claims he's cut down on junk and is now eating healthily. But he insists dieting doesn't work. In fact, Jason says his life now depends on the weight loss drug Wigovi. Um, he spoke exclusively to Talk TV about his ongoing battle with obesity. Super morbidly obese and with a BMI more than triple that of an average overweight man, at just 33 years old, Jason Holton says his life is hanging in the balance. His only hope of slimming down and ultimately survival, the weight loss drug, will go be. I believe time's over for me in general, but I'm coming up 34 now. I know that I've, I've got to try something. Billed as a game-changer, the so-called wonder drug, also known as semaglutide, has now been rolled out on the NHS. But Jason, who is still on the wait list, insists he should be at the front of the queue. Make it priority for people that really need, that really need it, not people that are just, just chubby or obese, because I don't feel that's the problem. At his peak, Jason was more than 50 stone and described himself as Britain's fattest man. I did watch The Whale and it felt like a horror movie to me. I said to my mum, I said, don't watch it. I, I turned it off and I started crying. I cried myself to sleep in that film. It was very upsetting for me because now I thought I'm Britain's fattest man. That's what people are going to think of me. He now thinks he's dropped to 47 stone, but has no way of knowing for sure, as doctors simply can't get him on the scales. In fact, during his most recent hospital visit, clinicians considered taking him to London Zoo to use their scanning equipment. I think they're bringing him out now, they're bringing him out of the window now. Over the last few years, Jason's health has rapidly declined as a result of his increasing size. In 2020, he collapsed and had to be airlifted by crane from his mother's third-floor flat by a team of more than 30 firemen and engineers. That was the most devastating time of my life. The terrifying part of it all was the amount of people outside. 
Ever since he's been in and out of hospital and care homes, having suffered a series of life-threatening illnesses. From suspected blood clots to mini-strokes, he's now totally immobile and can barely breathe. Can just put that one, uh, up, that one on the top up a little bit? Earlier this year, he even came close to organ failure. And after his latest brush with death, Jason moved back into this custom-built council bungalow in Surrey, fitted with specially reinforced furniture. Unable to work, Jason is on benefits and it's estimated his health care has so far cost the taxpayer hundreds of thousands of pounds. Uh, what would try and be in my shoes, then, then answer that question. You are deserving yeah. of that money, of taxpayers' money? I believe so. Have you brought this on yourself, do no. you think? No. What would you uh, say kind to of. People? I would say 50% have. His 54-year-old mother, Lisa, lives in the next room and is now his full-time carer. It is very difficult because I can't really lead my life. But, you know, at the end of the day, Jason's my son and I love him very much. Lisa insists Jason was a happy, healthy boy. It wasn't until he became a teenager that she began to notice a problem. He was only 6'12 when he was born. And he was just long and thin. You know, what can you do? You can't control someone completely. So... And he was secretly eating, you believe, as well. That's what you're saying. Yeah, yeah. Jason blames mental health problems and bullying at school as being behind his weight gain. And he says the death of his father when he was just three years old also had an impact. Maybe if I had my father around, around maybe there would be rules set to what I'm eating and stuff, you know, to stop me from putting things like that in my mouth, you know. Addicted to takeaways and fast food, Jason could consume up to 10,000 calories a day. Just eating constant lamb, don't know me. I had a problem with energy drinks. I just decided to get like 15 of the uh, Munster cans and drink them all in one go. He now insists he's cut down and is eating healthier, but nothing is working. I've been making changes, which I seriously have for the audience. By the way, I have been my diet now. It's not consistent of loads of junk and I'm not changing. Too heavy for a gastric band, he says Wagovi is now the only answer. And if he doesn't get it soon, he may not survive the next two years. Where do you think you'll be in 2025? I could be dead, for sure. Uh, it's a time bomb now. Ollie Hudson there talking to Britain's fattest man, self-proclaimed. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. 
Um, of course, we're going to be talking to all of you a little bit later on in the show, so do please give us a call. 0344 499 1000 uh, is the number. We've been talking this morning, obviously, about the events in uh, Israel over the weekend. Uh, the events also here as a result of what's been happening uh, in Israel. You can tweet us at TalkTV. You can tweet us at IROMG as well. We'll also be talking about Labour Party conference coming up. But joining me now uh, to discuss obesity and the obesity problem in this country, uh, Tony Russo is here, an obesity nurse and consultant, and uh, from the National Obesity Forum, Tam Fry. Um, good, very good morning to, to both of you. Um, Tam, it's a shocking um, piece of footage, that, isn't it? Yeah. A man who has been able to reach that size can only have got there by almost constantly eating, it would seem. Well, he um, may have also not received the help early enough that he really did need. Um, I'm, I'm, we don't know the facts, but I would assume that even as a child he was really quite fat. Yeah. And, uh, and you noted that his mother's not... not particularly thin either, which not, is often not, the not case. Not particularly. And what is so urgently needed is that we actually start to get to families who are in that situation at a very early age and educate them and educate the parents, educate all the people in the family as to really what should happen. Now, it won't happen overnight, but it, it's, a, it's a progressive visiting from the health professionals, such as Ms. Rousseau, yeah. and... Uh, educating and talking about food and good food and bad food and what they should be doing. And that hasn't happened. And it hasn't happened for the last 30 years. And so what's happening now is that we're reaping or the rewards of 30 years of indolence on the part of the authorities, which is basically government, uh, to, to actually address it. We really have to do that. Right. Tony, I'm looking at somebody that size. I mean, is it possible for him to become sort of what you might call a normal weight again? It is, but I think realistically, even with the most um, dramatic weight loss surgery, um, not a single operation would get you sort of 100% of your excess weight loss, but certainly get him small enough to be able to have a normal life and walk yeah. about and have a bit of quality of life. Mm. And what about this Wagovi treatment? Because a lot of people are talking about it. You know, I don't think that many people understand it, Tony, first of all. I mean, is that something that could help somebody that size? And, and a lot of people have said to me as well, how do we get this Wigovi? Because lots of people seem to want it. Well, that's a real problem with yeah. Wigovi. It was launched too early uh, because the manufacturers didn't have enough stock. Mm. It was launched. There were very good trials and showed that a, a weight loss of uh, 10, 15 more percent. Yeah. And everybody went for it. And then you had also the problem of having people like Kim Kardashian and, and all the Hollywood set who wanted to be slim. And right. so they took it. So it was totally inappropriate use mm. of a very powerful drug. And what actually worries me is that now people will think, OK, I can go into a store and I can buy it over mm. the counter and I can take it. Not possible at all because it's only for those who are already very obese. So you, you can buy a version of it, can't you? Yeah, that, you can buy it. Mean, I know uh, people who have bought it. You can buy it. Ozempic. If, you, if you're rich enough and yeah. lucky enough, go on the web and you can buy it. Right. But if you take it without medical supervision right. and the constant attention of people like Tony, mm. uh, then it will go wrong. And now but that is the problem, Tony, isn't it? Mm. Well, because people are well, five percent. There are five percent of people that the drug doesn't work for, and we don't know why. It's just luck. Um, it, it comes in two forms. The drug's called semaglutide, and the the lower dose version, which has been available in the UK for a while, is Zempig, and that's for diabetics. Yeah. And the higher dose is called Wigovi, which is the higher. And then Wigovi's only just been launched in the UK. 
So what was happening was people, doctors were prescribing a Zempicoff license to people you know, living with morbid obesity. Right. And then Kim Kardashian, people caught on and they thought, I'll just have this. And they could be people that are actually within the normal weight range, but right. they just wanted to get into a size zero or something. Right. And so the problem we have now is that you can't supply demand. Uh, you've got people that have stockpiled it and they're selling it at greatly inflated prices. Mm. People that are advertising on places like Facebook, where they're, they're advertising a generic, and no such legal generic exists. Right. So it's coming out of some lab in the back of somebody's garden, right. and people are buying it. But people are so Isn't desperate. Isn't there supposed to be some kind of regulation for this kind of there thing? Is, there is. There is regulation. And you it sound like it. I could go to France tomorrow, for example, if they had it in stock, and I could get it prescribed and bring it home. Mm. What I can't do is get somebody to post it to me from France, because right. the, the laws are very different. So you've got people crossing boundaries. And Turkey seems to have a lot of it. Right. But we don't know if it's real. So, I mean, if somebody is watching this now and thinks, oh, maybe I could do that, maybe I could go on Facebook and buy something and try it. And, I mean, clearly it's not advisable, not but, but it sounds like they can do that. Well, they can do. You can, you can go on the internet and you can go to one of the online pharmacies that are quite reputable and you can fill in a questionnaire and a prescriber will look at it and evaluate whether you're suitable or not and prescribe it for you. The problem is there's nothing to stop me going on and pretending to be my... 55-year-old, 20-stone uncle right. um, to get it in, in their name. That, right. that, that's a bigger concern. So, Tam, do you just have to fill out a sort of an online form, effectively, and say, you know, I weigh however many kilos, yeah. 200 kilos or I mean, something? It's, and... a, it's a free market. And right. This drug is so powerful, it should be controlled. And what we're now starting to understand is that uh, because it takes time for yeah. drugs to have their effect, well, yeah. to see if they're side effects, but there are now very worrying ideas uh, bits of literature coming out saying that you could get stomach paralysis um, and you could get pancreatitis. And these are serious conditions mm. which you could attract. I'm not saying that you are going right. to attract it, but certainly it's there for uh, people to, to, to get. Uh, if, if they have supervision, then they will be guided away from that. Mm. So don't do it on your own. Do it right. under... And if you are people. to go to see a doctor to see if they can prescribe it for you, what, what, what criteria do you have to meet then? Well, the, the, the doctor, if the doctor's going to prescribe it, you have to have a BMI of 35 right. or it's a BMI of 30 mm. with a comorbidity like uh, not, diabetes. Not for Wygovy, actually. That's for weight loss surgery. 30 for Wygovy or 27 if you've got another health-related disorder. Uh, weight loss surgery is rather stricter, so that's right. the the high limit. Right. But aren't we told that loads of people are now obese in this country? So presumably they're well, not a, thir no. a third of people in the UK. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's 20 million, isn't it? Mm. That's a huge number of people. Right. And although the government is trying to uh, establish clinics, it's put, uh, this year it's put 47 million, uh, 48 million into clinics. Yeah. Um, it's going to take time for the clinics to get up to speed and for that to take effect. So uh, they're doing something, but it's certainly not enough. Mm. And uh, my beat is always prevention is better than cure. Yes. And so the government's got to think, OK, we've got to slim very fat people down to give them a better chance mm. of having a normal lifestyle. Yeah. But at the same time, we've got to go right back to the roots and stop the next generation becoming the same. And you favour, because I've spoken to you, Tam, many times about this, um, more tightly controlled sort of foodstuffs being sold, salt content, sugar, all of that, right? Oh, well, certainly a lot of work has got to be done. I mean, one of the, bigger day, one of the biggest problems is the food that we eat is less than healthy, a lot of it. And that's uh, excess of sugar, salt and fat. 
And so the government at the same time has got to take on the food industry that doesn't actually want any kind of regulation. Mm. But things have got so serious that the food industry has got to be told, you can have that amount of sugar in your product and that's enough. And uh, we know that it now works because of the sugary drinks mm. industry levy, where the government in 2016 said, you've got two years to sort yourself out. Everybody said, not going to work, they weren't pay. Two years, we had about 90% of our soft drinks low in sugar or minus sugar. The only two of the products were the original form of something like 36 mm. grams of sugar in the in the in the bottle, right. and uh, they wanted to keep that for the true aficionados, if you will. But uh, everybody else. It's a horrific sugar. level of sugar, though, isn't it? Hmm? It's a horrific level of sugar that they put in. Oh the yeah, absolutely. Well, they used to anyway. But now we've got 45% uh, less sugar in the drinks that we take. And although it's going to take a bit of time, that will pass through. Everybody understands that that was a success. And actually, we've now got to extend that mm. into foodstuffs. It's going to take a bit more yeah. time, but it's got to happen. And Tony, do you share that approach? Do you think that's right? Absolutely, I do. I mean, I think we've got children having children, and a lot of them have never seen any sense of normal budgeting or eating healthy foods. So certain councils, like Lambeth Council, for example, are trying to get kitchens set up um, whereby people can go along and cook with friends. Right. See, the social aspect as well, and learn how to cook healthy foods. Mm. A lot of people, it's, it's very easy to judge and say you should go to the out-of-town out supermarket and buy a bag of you know, vegetables cheaply. But if you live on the third floor of a high-rise with a buggy and two and three children, you can't get to these places. And, I mean, I, I worked as a community midwife um, some years ago, and I'd go into homes where people didn't have a cook or even a microwave. The luckiest thing they had was maybe a a kettle to make a pot noodle. Uh. So you can educate people as much as you like, but if they haven't got the resources and the skills. And, and the other thing we have to think about, why are people getting heavier? We've got um, issues with the changes of the food, which, which Tam has talked about. But also, um, we know there's something called the set point. So your body makes up its mind roughly what your weight should be, which is why you typically hear the story of the someone that lost five stone and then they regained six. Mm. That's very normal. And we're now, there's lots of research coming out to say there's undiagnosed ADHD. And that may be one of the reasons why people are getting heavy, because they're looking for that dopamine hit. Yes, interesting. Well, we could probably talk about this all day. Well, I'm sure we'll talk about it again. But, but thank you very much indeed, Tony Rousseau. Sam Fry, thank you. Let's talk about what's been happening over in the Middle East. Uh, over 1,100 people have died in this weekend's fighting between Israel and the Islamist terrorist group Hamas. Israel's defence minister has ordered a complete siege uh, on the Gaza Strip as the US sends warships and fighter jets to support Israeli forces. We're going to speak now to former Republican congressman, former presidential candidate as well, uh, Mr Joe Walsh. Joe, very good morning. To you. Michael, good to be with you, my yeah, friend. Really good to see you. Um, shocking, shocking pictures that we saw over the course of the weekend. Images of, of in, innocent people, children, women, um, families being targeted by Hamas. I mean, it just doesn't bear thinking about. The biggest ever, uh, as far as in my lifetime goes, I think, incursion into Israel by over a thousand um, militant terrorists from Hamas, probably funded by Iran, probably helped by Hezbollah, probably helped by Qatar as well. I mean, what are we going to do? Uh, Michael, this must be a game changer, period. Hamas is evil. Uh, Israel is good. And look, Hamas can be no more, period. They're animals, they're savages, they're terrorists. This terrorist organization that rules the Gaza Strip must be eliminated. They can be no more. And Michael, look, I think Israel made a huge mistake back in 2005 when they disengaged and left the Gaza Strip. 
It has been used as a base of terror against Israel for the past 18 years. Israel I mean, has got to take Gaza back. So in what sense do you mean that, though? Do they send troops in? Do they physically grab it back? Do they let the people who live there leave? What do they do about that? Well, I think they go in and I think they eliminate Hamas. I think they 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 do as as good as they can, Michael, to protect Palestinian civilians. And then they take over and control and manage Gaza. Uh, the Palestinian people, Michael, who live in Gaza would be much better under Israeli control. They're being used. They're being purposely killed right now by Hamas. Everything happening to the Palestinians in Gaza right now is because of Hamas. Hamas doesn't care about them. Life has been miserable for them for the past 18 years. Israel will make Israel will improve that. And what do you make, by the way, of the way that the world has reacted? Because we've seen uh, in this country pro-Palestinian demonstrations. Apparently, there was one on Sunday in New York City as well. Um, we've seen other, um, you know, sort of communities, shall we say, around Europe celebrating this Hamas victory. I mean, it's beggar's belief. I can't believe that there's anyone in this world who would congratulate somebody for stripping a woman naked, putting her on the back uh, of a pickup truck dead and then spitting on her just because she happened to be an Israeli citizen. I mean, I find it absolutely staggering. But we've got migrant camps here in Europe where people were cheering on Hamas. You know, we've got a very troubled world here, uh, Joe, it seems to me. We do. And look, Michael, I, the world is, is a hell of a lot more black and white than people think. There is good and there is evil. Putin. Putin is evil. Ukraine is good. Iran, the ruling regime of Iran, is evil. Uh, the United Kingdom and America are good. Israel is good. Hamas is evil. I think the world changed big time two days ago, Michael, and we're not going back. I, people, people who do not support Israel's right to exist, there's going to be a confrontation now like we've never seen with these people. Yeah. I mean, there are those who would disagree fundamentally with everything you've just said, Joe. I'm not necessarily one of them, but, you know, uh, to say that Russia's good and Ukraine is bad is a bit of an oversimplification, no. isn't it? Well, hold on, Michael, but remember, I said Putin is evil. Yeah. I purposely didn't say Russia. Right. The ruling regime of Iran is evil, yeah. not the Iranian people. Right. There's no doubt as well, there's a piece of the Wall Street Journal today which uh, says basically there's no doubt uh, that both Hamas and Hezbollah were involved in this, but it was very much as a result of the Islamic Revolutionary Guard from Iran that this attack was made possible. The money that they, uh, that they got was from Iran. We know that there were several meetings, many of them held in Beirut. There may have even been a couple in Qatar. I mean, the Americans could play a massive role here, but Biden, Joe Biden, is now being blamed for giving $6 billion away to the Iranian regime um, well, in a massive well, era of judgment. Well, that's, and that's a bunch of bullcrap. Uh, Iran doesn't have six, that $6 billion yet. They don't even have their hands on that yet. Michael, that's a bunch of bull that my former Republican friends are putting out there. L look, uh, this, this... So does, this, has he not lifted the sanctions then? You're, you're, uh, completely agree with that. Completely agree with that. And Biden's going to have to be a hell of a lot tougher on Iran. Let's understand. I think we agree, Michael. This has been months and months and months in the planning, this terrorist attack. And I think, I believe, Iran did this and had Hamas do this 
because of the way Israel and the rest of the Arab world have been normalizing relationships. I don't like Trump, Michael, you do, but Trump began that, and that's a good thing. Yeah. And Biden has continued it with Saudi Arabia. I think this is what Iran and Hamas are pushing back against because they don't want the Arab world to have relations with Israel. Well, sources I've been speaking to in the Middle East say that basically this whole attack was designed to blow up that peace deal, those talks that were going on between the Saudis and, and Israel, yeah. because Iran doesn't want to be left to be completely and utterly isolated. But you're right to say that Trump started these uh, uh, yes. manoeuvrings, he started these, these talks. Um, I wonder, though, um, whether others will believe that if he was still in charge, this wouldn't have happened. Oh, it's, no, yes. It, yes, no, yes, it would have. Which is it? <laughs> it, it, it? It would have happened, Michael. Look, look. This, this day was coming no matter who the American president is. The Arab world, the Muslim world, has been using and abusing the Palestinian people in Gaza for years. Their entire point is to blame Israel. They, they, they don't care. Hamas doesn't kill that Palestinians are being killed right now. Hamas wants Palestinians killed because they want to rally that evil, ugly world against Israel. This was going to happen no matter what. And we need to stand strong against it. Uh, but what do you make, though, of, of these uh, expressions of, of, of pride in what's happened in, in, in New York and in London and in Manchester and in other parts of Europe? You know, these people demonstrating. Because we now have a country, and you do, I guess, as well, um, which is full of communities, you know? And obviously, we're not going to pretend to say that every Muslim community is in support of what Hamas did. But there's a sizable number of people who seem to want to wave the Palestinian flag, who want to say that this was a Palestinian action, not a Hamas action, and they want to live in the United States of America and the United Kingdom and enjoy all of the freedoms that that gives them. And yet, they are, I think, easy to be described as enemies of the state, aren't they? Well, right. But again, we believe in freedom like you believe in freedom, and they have a right to protest and support Hamas all they want. But understand, they're supporting evil. And Michael, these people, all these crazy people protesting in New York City, supporting, literally supporting what happened yesterday, uh, two days right. ago, celebrating it. Those are the people who, if they were in Gaza right now, Michael, they wouldn't be surviving. Right. Hamas would let them die. They're messed up, they're misguided, and their hatred for Israel, Michael, is just visceral. Yeah. I mean, visceral. We see anti-Semitism on the far left and the far right. This is a dangerous thing. Exactly right. But so therefore, you know, maybe these people should go and live somewhere else. If they don't want to be on the side of good, if they don't want to be on the side of America or the side of the UK or the side of NATO uh, or the side of um, Israel, you know, maybe they need to go back and live in the Gaza Strip or wherever it is they came from. Amen. It's really easy for them to protest in the United Kingdom or America because we let them. The countries and the evil that they support would never let them protest. If they were lesbian or gay, they'd be killed. But yet they still support these regimes. They're misguided and messed up. They really are. I don't know what your view is of Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez, uh, AOC, as she's known, but her squad is apparently calling for a ceasefire. Um, she's been attacked for saying that. Is a ceasefire the way forward or not? Anyone calling for a ceasefire right now, Michael, is no friend of Israel's. Mm. This was Israel's 9-11. Was anybody calling for America to ceasefire after we were hit on 9-11? Look, there is an element of the left in America 
that is anti-Semitic. The squad, some of these far left members of Congress put out statements that couldn't even condemn what Hamas did. This is dangerous. Yeah, it's absolutely ridiculous. And it's absolutely shameful, in my view, that, that we saw what I could consider to be some of the worst. I mean, I covered the war in Bosnia, which was pretty horrible. But what, what was going on over the weekend where you saw videos of little boys being pushed and shoved and smacked in the face and being called Jew uh, and, and all sorts of things? And as I said earlier, the, 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 the videos of, of naked, dead yeah. women on the back of pickup trucks being spat on. I mean, I've never seen anything like that. Uh, butchery, animals, savages, Michael. Yeah. I'll tell you what, though, I, this is a game changer. Democrats in America who are left of center, who don't openly show their support for Israel like people like me do, they are right now, and they're pissed off, and they're angry. I, I just think the world is going to rally to Israel's side like we've never, ever seen before. Right. And Israel's going to do things, Michael, they've never done before to and stop of course, this. One of the other things that people have said, and I don't wish to be part of, you know, in any way blaming Israel for being unprepared, but, you know, this was a massive manoeuvre, a thousand people coming over the border. Um, there were seemingly no defences in that part of the, of, of the country, despite being right next to Gaza. Um, should American intelligence been better, have been better and, and, and yes. should Israeli intelligence have been better? We all screwed up. A, a massive failure. Uh, a governmental failure in Israel. And it, it, to, to the point where, the, you know, it, the government should resign. Not now, because right now it's all about fighting back. Mm. But this is a failure, Michael, at a level we've never seen. We haven't seen for 50 years in Israel our intelligence failed. I think Israel, with their intelligence, especially when it comes to Gaza, got fat and lazy, and they put their eyes elsewhere, and they just sort of took for granted that Hamas isn't capable of this. They really messed up, and they let their people down. And what about the uh, guy who runs Hamas living in Qatar? You know, he's protected by the Qataris. You know, we know that there are certain um, emirates and, and, and countries in that part of the world uh, which have places to hide for uh, the Taliban. Uh, they have a Taliban office, I think, in, uh, in Qatar as well. Um, you know, is there any hope or is there any, anything that, that the US government could do, President Biden can do, um, to go after these people? Has to. Have to. Again, Michael, I lead with Hamas needs to be completely eliminated. I mean, no more. And so Hamas leaders in every other country need to be sought down, grabbed and killed, period. So, yes, I, I am expecting and hoping that Biden and the United States and all of our allies now are going to put pressure on these other Arab countries this is the time for choosing now. You either help us or or, or there's going to be a price to pay, yeah. an economic price to pay. Joe Walsh, thank you very much indeed for talking to us. Joe Walsh there Thanks, in the Michael. United States of America. Thanks a lot. Um, America must act, says Joe. There is no ceasefire that he wants to see. There is only a routing uh, of these murderers, of these savages, of these barbarians, these ghastly people who did such awful things to innocent civilians. Let's not forget... They didn't fight a war, they fought a terrorist action. They are terrorists. They are killing innocent people. They killed innocent people. That's exactly what they did.
Welcome back. You're watching the Independent Republican Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. Steve Coogan has spoken of the challenge of playing paedophile Jimmy Savile in a new BBC drama which broadcast this evening. The actor says he wanted to be careful not to portray Savile as a pantomime villain because that, he says, would be a disservice to the survivors and the victims. Joining me now uh, is the former police detective turned TV journalist who exposed Savile. Uh, it's Mark Williams-Thomas. Mark, a very good uh, afternoon to you. Um, I guess, first of all, I should ask you whether you think they should have ever made this, because a lot of people don't think they should. Good afternoon. No, I mean, there's certain stories, I think, when they reach the level that the exposure of Savile did, I, I think you have to step away from it. The BBC was so instrumental in their role in the cover-up, really, of Savile's activities, mm. both knowing and unknowing. I mean, the Dame Janet Smith review was very clear in terms of people in the Radio 1 uh, management knew exactly what was going on in terms of his offending against children, but didn't do anything about it. Uh, and in fact, then she says in the end of a report, you know, no one was held responsible, uh, but she couldn't find any findings. Well, there were contradictions in her review. The bottom line is the BBC shouldn't be doing this. I, I understand to a degree they think that actually, do you know what, we need to put some things right. They made so many mistakes that I think some things are left better not said. There are so many victims in this case, many of whom I've spoken to over the last days and weeks, and they don't want it. They do no. not want it at all. We're not talking about a couple here. There are a couple of victims. We're talking about well in excess of 500 victims. That's an awful lot mm. of people. And I think this story would be better left untold, certainly, by the BBC. Yes, exactly. Because unless they're actually going to investigate their own role in it and kind of try and find out exactly where it all went wrong and why, but I suspect that's not going to be part of it because I presume they don't want to really go there or maybe they don't even know. But I was thinking this at the weekend. You know, imagine if you were one of those people who had been affected by Jimmy Savile, who had been molested or had been sexually assaulted or had even been raped by him. I mean, you're not going to want to be reminded of what he looks like, are you? No, absolutely. I mean, I was contacted this morning by one of his past victims who said, please, I've written this article, please, could you post it? So I posted it on my Twitter page. Mm. And it's a very personal view from her. And the bottom line is, is the BBC made huge failings here. You know, they were even trying to cover this up on the eve of the broadcast of our ITV exposure programme, where finally I was able, with the help of the victims, to tell their story. They were even at that point trying to play down mm. his role at the BBC and, in fact, the BBC's role in this. It did lead to the Director General losing his position and, in fact, it led to policy changes throughout the police, children's services or criminal justice system. The widespread landslide that followed the exposure of Savile was massive and, of course, it led to many other people being arrested. Mm. But let's be very clear, the BBC for many, many years allowed him to continue his offending behaviour. Many of those people in the BBC management knew what was going on or at least had suspicions and should have stopped it from happening. Yeah. He became so powerful. And I think the problem is that this story... Uh, told by the BBC. It's told by the BBC. It's commissioned by the BBC. Or there are some people saying, well, it's made by ITV Studios. ITV Studios are a production arm. They're simply a production house. This is BBC commissioned. This is BBC editorial throughout. And I think the problem is, is that however you tell the story, even if it's the best will in the world, the problem is there are hundreds of victims out there who do not want this story told by the BBC. Yeah. And the BBC should listen to that. I mean, is the BBC even now conducting some kind of investigation into what happened? Because I've never really seen an explanation from anyone at the BBC, unless I've missed that, as to what went on. 
No, I mean, the BBC have never been held to account. And it's not just the BBC. There are a number of other organisations, you know, hospitals that seriously failed and the police. Nobody has been held to account at all for the failings of Savile. And one of the stories that's never been told, we've had the Netflix Savile programme. We've also had uh, a number of other programmes you know, around Savile. Nobody has told the story of those people who have failed. And that's the story that needs to be told. I mean, on and the aftermath of it, the amount of information that I gathered from my second exposure programme about those people who knew and covered up, that's the story that needs to be told. That's the programme that needs making. Mm. Nobody has got the nerve to make it. But there is a programme out there, and it's the only programme that I would follow up and make, and that is to hold those people to account who knew exactly what Savile was up to and should be held to account. And, I mean, without telling me who they all are, I mean, you know presumably some of them and know who some of them are and, and what they did at the time. Absolutely. I mean, I, I can name those individuals and I would name those individuals. It takes a strong arm of a broadcaster who's going to, who's prepared to put that uh, out there. But yeah, you know, we can make a really strong program holding five or six people to account, senior management, who knew exactly what was going on and allowed it to happen. Failings within the police service as yeah. well, who for decades allowed him to get away with his offending behaviour, even up until the utter failings of the police investigation by Surrey Police, who investigated him, interviewed him on Stoke Mandeville property without even discussing it with Stoke Mandeville. Very serious allegations of sexual assault. No discussions yeah. with Stoke Mandeville. I mean, this is a, a catalogue of, of failings. And the thing is with a programme is that there has to be a value to it. What is the value of this drama? Well, who is it serving a purpose for? Is it the BBC trying to get some kind of, you know, wash their, their hands and say, look, you know, we're making this programme now, we're sorry. I, I don't think that, that carries any weight at all. Uh, why is it being made? Because we're not learning lessons from it at all. So I think there's actually... This is going to cause more harm, yeah. more repeated um, you know, worry for those people. It's re-victimisation. Many right. of those people who have suffered the victims, you know, over 500 victims we put to the Metropolitan Police Operation Utrecht, they are all going to suffer you know, re-victimisation when they watch this programme. And many of them will want to watch this programme because they'll want to see how it's being portrayed. And, of course, it's had a massive part of their life. So in one part of their life, they'll be going, do you know what, I don't want to watch this because this probably isn't good for me. But there'll be that element of them that will be going, actually, I need to watch this because this is what he did. He changed yeah. my life. And let's be clear, victims of sexual abuse don't just live the torment and the, the abuse when it happens, but they live it for decades afterwards. Yes, because I'm not sure who this is aimed at. I mean, if it turns out that they're aiming it at the people who were affected by his, uh, his acts and his awfulness, then that's a pretty cold place to go, I would have thought. But I can't imagine in a meeting inside of the BBC when they said, who are we aiming this at, that they have an answer for that. Well, that's a very, very important question. And it was something I spoke to a couple of uh, survivors this morning. And one of the things I would be saying to the Director General, and don't forget, I asked the Director General for an interview prior to my Savile programme in October 2012, and he refused to give me one. Mm. Um, all he needed to do was say then, look, we're seriously looking at these, investiga these allegations. They're very serious. But my question to the Director General right now would be, what is the purpose of this program? Yeah. Who is it serving a purpose? You are a public broadcaster, and it, and, and it has to have a value into, in which case you're broadcasting. Why are you broadcasting this? Everybody knows the BBC and other institutions failed to get Savile and bring him to justice, but what is the purpose of this broadcast? Yeah. 
Yeah, it's a very, very good question. Maybe you should come and make your next show, uh, next programme here. Well, <laughs> yes, maybe I should. I mean, uh, there, there is a programme to be made and I've got all that information and it's, you know, fitting in between my other programme schedules. But absolutely, I'd be very happy to talk about it because there is a programme to, to hold people to account. And this is one of the major problems. When there's failings, the public want individuals to be held to account. It's right that they should be. You know, people take on very senior roles. They get paid very, very well. And when they make a mistake, that's fine. But when they do a cover-up, when they allow somebody to continue, then they need to be held to account. And there are people within the BBC. There are people within the police. There are people within the... Um, uh, hospitals and the prison system. Don't mm. forget the role that Broadmoor played within this is absolutely mm. shocking. All those people, let's put the information out there and the public can decide exactly the same way as they did when I put my Savile program out. One of the interesting things is when I, the, the eve of my broadcast of my ITV exposure program, you know, I took a lot of criticism from certain quarters from the public saying, you know, are you right to be doing this? And, and I said, look, you know, I'm not judge and jury here. You are. My audience is the judge and jury. And let them decide what they think in the same way as a judge and jury of, of, of what, who watch your programs, you know, your broadcast. It's the public make their mind up. And ultimately, following the broadcast of our program, the public made their, their feelings known in droves. It led to a massive investigation by Operation Nutri and enabled many, many other victims, both high-profile, the Rolf Harris's and Max Clifford's, to be brought to justice, but also many, many people who we don't know about. This saved, and I got a direct letter from the chief executive of the LSPCC who said, as a direct result of your programme, over a 1,000 children now and past have been saved from abuse. That's the impact mm. of television. When you get it right, it can be huge. But my question to the BBC and to the makers of this programme is what is the value of this? What is the purpose of this? Mm. Are you just simply making television because it's a ratings game or are you making something with a purpose? If it's being made with a purpose, which all programmes should be, I believe, then what is it? Mm, exactly right. Are you portrayed in it at all, do you know? No, I mean, no one's even spoken to me about it. I've got more, I know more about Savile than, than probably, well, almost anybody else. I mean, when the, the initial police investigation began, the superintendent came to see me at ITV. He said, you know, I, I want to be able to understand what you know. And I said, you know, this is over a year's work. In fact, the Metropolitan Police said afterwards, your investigation is the most thorough investigation we've, we've ever seen. Mm you know, in terms of outside of the police service and even in terms of the police service. We were very, very forensic in terms of everything we did. Nobody's spoken to me. Uh, and in fact, they haven't really spoken to the broad depth of the victims and the survivors as well. They've spoken to some, but they've not talked talked to the more the, the broader level. So mm. no, no communication at all. And I, um, yeah, I, I think the problem is when you make a programme, you really do have to cast the net wide and speak to those people who are probably going to give you answers that you might not necessarily want. I mean, Dame Janet Smith, when she did her review, she didn't approach me. I approached Dame Janet Smith and I said to her, I find it quite shocking that you don't want to talk to me. Well, we don't think you've got anything to add. I said, have you ever made a programme? I said, a programme of 60 minutes, which on ITV is 47 minutes. You know, I have huge amounts more information mm. that I can't put into the programme, or I can't put in the programme for legal reasons. What do you think I do with all that information? And she said, yeah, that's a very valid point. And in fact, when I did go to see her, at the end of it, I gave her a bit of a roasting. And she said, Mark, I apologise. I apologise on behalf. We should have made an approach to you, and your information has been very helpful.
The problem with the Dame Janet Smith review is it was very limited. And there is still a huge amount of information out there which has fallen down the gap, which has never been put out there about Savile and his offending behaviour and also his links to a number of other people. He wasn't an individual who was offending uh, routinely with other people, but there were occasions when there was a number of other individuals that he did offend with. Mm. And there is obviously so much footage of him just being a horrible individual, isn't there? I mean, I'm not, I'm not talking about secret footage. I'm talking about things that he said on air, on programmes, which were filmed by the BBC and which were put out. Yeah, I mean, we've seen this now, haven't we? We've seen this when uh, allegations are made you know, decades, years later. Yeah. They go looking back at, uh, at uh, programmes or scripts and they see things that obviously at the time got through. I mean, one of the points that was made by some people is that, you know, generations are different, times are different. Let's be very clear. 20, 30 years ago, sexual offence, indecent assaults, rape were exactly the same. Mm. The legislation hasn't changed in that period of time. Attitudes have changed in terms of reporting it, and that's good. But the offences were still there. And, and the problem is, of course, is that he, this man became so powerful. Yeah. At the time, there was only two broadcasters. It was ITV and BBC. And he rolled the roost on BBC. He was allowed to get away with anything. And I said in my Radio Times interview at the time, is that, you know, I, I firmly believe that the Jim Will Fix It programme was created as a vehicle for his offending behaviour. This man was allowed yeah. to get away with anything. He travelled around the country in a camper van speaking to school children. You know, in the 1960s when he first started offending, you know, when he created his, his music empire, really, mm. which is the discos, you know, he had young children at his his fingertip. This is a man who, through his career, has enabled himself to offend. And, and his links to royalty, we touched on it in our second programme, but his links to royalty were incredible. This is a man who's got no history of any relationships working at all, yet he was counselling Princess Diana mm. on behalf of Prince Charles. Prince Charles specifically contacted him and said, could you help Princess Diana in terms of some of her situation? Yeah. You know, could you be there as a, as a shoulder for her to cry? This man's got absolutely no experience of, mm. of marital situations or any relationships at all. Very, very weird man and an utter con. He yeah. never, you know, he completed one, possibly two marathons in his time. He'd start a marathon, jump in his car, his Rolls Royce, and be dropped off just before the finishing line. The man is a con, but he mm. did incredibly well. And the saddest thing of all of this is, of course, he died before he's brought to justice. And yeah. that's the biggest part of the failings of society as a whole. But he was too powerful. Yeah. There was no way you could make a program whilst he was still alive. He was so litigious and no broadcaster would have touched it. Welcome back. You're watching the Independent Republican Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. Now it's time for this. The world of work. Now, do you know how some people like to make investments which are, in their words, ethical? Uh, there's something called ESG, Environmental, Social and Governance Funds, apparently. But there's a bit of a backlash because apparently what you want to do if you put investments into companies, if you're woke, you want to make sure that they fit the criteria, that they're ethical investments. Well, guess what? People are saying enough already. We don't care if they're actual ethical investments because £2.5 billion has been taken out of ESG funds because there's now a backlash about woke stock picking. Imagine that. So maybe 
we say this all the time on the world of woke. We are actually winning uh, the war on woke because at the end of the day, people want to make money. It's a bit like the ecosystems that people join in on. If you want to have net zero and it doesn't cost you anything, you might say, oh, yeah, net zero is definitely for me. Uh, and if they say to you, uh, do you want to invest in your pension fund, uh, something to do with woke um, organizations like you don't want to invest in banks, you don't want to invest in oil companies, you don't want to invest in things which are damaging the planet or you do. Well, now, apparently, because people are feeling the pinch, uh, the investment world has changed and people don't care anymore whether it's ESG framed or not. And I think that can only really be a good thing. So in the world of woke today, we're actually rejoicing because woke capitalism was never really a thing. And I'm very glad that it is now no longer being honoured by an awful lot of organisations. In the last five months, two and a half billion pounds gone south out of the wokest's pockets, which can only be something to rejoice. And that is the world of woke. The world of woke. Across the UK, online and on DAB, the independent republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. So if you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday on Talk Radio, via DAB, online or via the Talk Radio app. If you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio.